All right, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have very special guest, Mr. Ron Friends, who's been a comic artist since the early 1980s, working with Marvel Comics, DC Comics, as well as various independent comics. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Ron, we're going to kind of jump back and forth. Jim's going to start on your early years, so take it away, Jim. Okay, so, Ron, you were born in uh, February 1960, is that right? <laughs> Boy, when you said early years, you're not kidding, are you? Yes, I, I was <laughs> born in a small 800-watt radio station in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. No, it was, yes, February 1st, 1960, that's when it all started, yes. So you and I were born within two months of each other, so I'm going to be curious about what you were reading when I was reading and things like that. Now, okay. You live in Bellevue? Yeah. I actually I actually live a hop, skip, and a jump from the hospital I was born in. I grew up in the North Hills of Pittsburgh well, 30-some years ago, moved to a borough called Bellevue, which is hilarious when you work for people from New York, since Bellevue is a, is a psychiatric hospital in New York. So oh, if you ever oh, watch sure. Barney Miller, if you ever watch Barney Miller, they always talked about taking all the nutcases to Bellevue. So if you're working for people in an office in New York City and you say you live in Bellevue, they love it. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, I've been living here my entire life, and uh, I love it around here. I, I've thought about moving more than once, but pretty much always came back around to home is home, you know. And um, your father was a paper salesman? Yes, he's, he, was a, uh, he was a salesman. He worked in paper products for decades, actually before he retired. He took a job with my brother's home heating fuel and oil company and was selling home heating product and lubricants. But it was all selling, you know. Yeah, he was a traveling salesman, basically. He had a fairly large area in West Virginia and Ohio and Pittsburgh. and uh, But we always had, you know, reams of paper around the house to draw on. And I, I think that certainly helped i i never had to draw on the walls you know that kind of thing so yes yes and my mom Did was you ever go maker. out on the road with him no i went to the office with him a few times and you know made some runs with him and stuff when i was a real young kid he would do that occasionally when we had a day off of school or something he was an incredibly personable guy and uh <laughs> when i was growing up he would always he had a he had a knack for calling people by nicknames, and he would call people Skip or Pete. And <laughs> I, when I was a young kid, I thought my dad knew everybody until I started to realize, wait a minute, everybody's name is Skip or Pete, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, now my dad uh, was a, you know everybody thinks this about their dad, but he was one of a kind. He was a very personable guy and very successful as a salesman. So yeah. You mentioned your brother. Now, that's you, you had a brother that was uh, three years older than you. Was was he kind of a launching pad for you to get interested in comics early? I would say that was probably the case. I actually have two older brothers and a younger sister. The oldest brother is 13 years older than I am. So he's virtually in a different generation. But yes, the brother, Randall, who's three years older, that first comic book that I remember having around the house, that world's finest that I've talked about on my Facebook page, was a 1964 comic, and I would have only been four years old. He would have been seven. So I'm thinking he was responsible for bringing it into the house more than I. So, yes, I, I think we, we shared a passion for comics, but I would have to uh, give him the nod on that. Uh, I would think my first exposure to comics were because of books that he was asking for and not myself. Yeah. Was there a point where he stopped reading comics and you kept reading them? I don't think so. I mean, he went off to college. When he went off to college, I remember he took most of our DCs and I kept the Marvels. Because <laughs> we, we like, like a lot of kids, we started out on DCs and discovered Marvel in the late 60s mid to late, yeah, late 60s, because I think my first exposure was probably the Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, it was in syndication in the mornings, and oh, I wow. fell in love with Spider-Man and wanted to track down the comics and the old Marvel superhero cartoons and things like that. Uh, there was a, a kid in our neighborhood that we would trade comics with, and he was already in the Marvels, so I would get some, some Ditko reprints and everything through that association. 
Have you gone back and looked at those uh, Spider-Man cartoons? Because once they bring in Ralph Bakshi, they get pretty crazy. They got really crazy. And I even knew that when they went into syndication in the afternoons, when I was in, you know, like, uh, I, I would probably have been about 14, 15. They were back in syndication in the afternoons. And that was when I realized that there was that whole season that was, more adapted from the comic books and everything, uh, the Grand Trey Lawrence episodes before they handed it over to Bakshi. I'll, I'll be honest, my biggest memory I had from seeing them in the mornings in syndication was the Bakshi stuff, it was like the origin cartoon and some of those early ones with the Kingpin and stuff. That's kind of what my memory was. So it was really fun rediscovering those uh, that first season of episodes. And, and the nostalgia overwhelms me anytime I watch them. So they're just, they're wonderful. They're weird, but wonderful. So. Yep, absolutely. Now, how old were you when you started to notice with the comics where you were paying attention to the artist or, or the artwork and, and noticing the differences between different people? Almost immediately, I think. We were always disappointed. And, of course, my, my tastes have broadened since. But I remember even as a kid, we were always disappointed when a, when a Superman or an action comic had a Kurt Swan cover, but way boring inside art. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we were recognizing the differences very early on. Of course, DC didn't put credits. I, I fell in love with the Aquaman cartoon in 1967 or 8. And so I was seeking out Aquaman comic books. And Nick Carty was doing them at the time. I fell in love with Nick Carty almost immediately. Oh, those covers during that period are just yeah. incredible. Yeah. And uh, so I was like nuts about Cardi. So, I mean, yeah, I was, I was, and when, once we discovered Marvel and credits and, and all of that, I, uh, I knew had my favorites and, and would seek uh, books out based on who was working on them and things. Yeah. I mean, early on, it's, we, we started when comics were 12 cents from, from 12 cents to 15 cents, to 25 to 20 back up to 25 during that period of time my brother and i we were going to like three different places and spinning the spinner rack and buying pretty much every marvel and dc comic because we could afford to do that i mean my our dad was willing to our allowance was basically that he would buy our comics every week you know every week so that worked out great i mean we never had to I mean, once they started to, to go up in price and, and, and once I, certainly once I was working in the industry and was getting back in the day, they used to send comps and everything, you know. But yeah, we were pretty, we were pretty abreast of everything. We didn't really read war comics or Westerns as much. At one point, I remember being of an age where I was embarrassed to buy romance comics because Marvel was reprinting this stuff and it was John Buscema inked by John Romita. And Gene Colan, inked by Sal Buscema, and it was all these wonderful art teams that you didn't see on the superheroes were doing these romance comics. And yet I was, you know, completely mortified to be buying a romance comic like anybody huh. cared, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I was you buying saw, yeah. Millie the Model. I, I was buying everything Marvel produced, the Westerns, all of it. I would I, I can't um, cop to that. The one, I did become an Archie fan, and I'll tell you one of the things that prompted that was when I was a kid and I was drawing superheroes, I came to realize that if I really wanted to do this for a living, I had to get better at backgrounds. I had to get better at cars and horses. And I had to get better at drawing women. So I was looking at a lot of Don Heck. And then I discovered the Archie comics and Dan DiCarlo and Harry Lucy and guys like that who were fantastic at drawing women and keeping it simple. So I started to pursue a bunch of back issue Archies just to learn how to draw girls. Yeah. I got hooked on Little Archie and recognized how just how fun that was. And then I, I just bought everything Archie had too. Well, I, I was never into how, Little Archie. Um, I, I have, even with the Archie stuff, I kind of have to cop to the cartoon helping to sell that too. Because in the uh, late 60s, there was an Archie cartoon that kind of captured the feel of the Archie books at the time. You know, Sugar, sugar. Yeah, absolutely. When I was working yeah. on the Archie stuff within the last few years... It was it was always a, an interesting moment for me because I always kind of considered Archie part of the big three. And when I was working on those couple of Archie stories with uh, Tom DeFalco, and I'd be sitting listening to uh, 
classic radio and Sugar Sugar would come on. And it was one of those little moments that, you know, it's like, this is cool. I'm working on an artsy thing and this thing and this stuff. And the, <laughs> and, and the guys, it was, it was neat. It was neat. Hmm. So how old were you when you decided you wanted to work for Marvel and when you grew up and, and draw Spider-Man? Pretty much upon, I mean, I drew constantly. So it was no surprise to anybody. By the time I was six or seven, by the time I had discovered Spider-Man, I would tell people that that's what I wanted to do when I grow up. I wanted to grow up, work for Marvel Comics, and draw Spider-Man. And what did your brother and your father say? Did they laugh, or were they like, yeah, he's good enough, maybe he will? My brother was always incredibly supportive, even when I didn't really deserve it. He would sit and blow sunshine up my behind that even at the time I remember going, Oh, he's being very kind. I, I was always pretty I had a an innate ability, I guess, to be pretty objective about my stuff. So when I would try to to copy something or when I would try to emulate somebody's style, you know, my brother would be going, Well if 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 that if that artist walked in here right now, he'd wonder, when did I draw that? you know, and I knew he was being too kind. You know, I knew he was he was just being very supportive. My dad, I don't know what he thought about it. My mom was always incredibly supportive. My mom on some level understood from very, very early on that somebody was getting paid to draw these things. You know, they weren't being produced for free. <laughs> you know, so she never I I never really had to suffer through criticism or doubt or things like a lot of other illustrators have. I've heard the stories, and I was very fortunate. I never really had to live with people telling me it was a pipe dream or anything like that. So when Spider-Man became your favorite character, who was drawing him at the time? Romita? Yeah, by the time I was buying new issues off the rack, it was uh, Romita. I discovered Ditko in some of the reprints that I traded for with, uh, with our, our neighbor and stuff. And recognized immediately that a lot of the stuff from the old 67 cartoon was taken off of Ramita. A lot of the headshots and everything were, or I'm sorry, uh, Ditko, were taken off of Ditko. And went, oh, that's oh, sure. where I got that stuff. But Ramita was my first regular monthly exposure to Spider-Man. Yeah, and it was in the, the, the 60s, uh, the late, the numbering of the books, it was like the late 60s. I remember the first one, I think the first Spider-Man I bought off the rack knew was uh, Oh Bitter Victory, where Kingpin is swinging Spider-Man around by his ankles mm. on the cover. Oh, yeah. I think I think that was my first off-the-rack brand-new Spider-Man book and just never looked back. Just loved every minute those, of it. Those Romita covers during his actual run are really, really strong. They I just, love some They of went those. in your eyes and blew out the back of your head. That's all there was to huh. it. I, That's I was just completely, completely obsessed. And, you know, by seeing Ramita and Kirby and Basema, both Basemas, I, I just, I became a, a probably as close to a Marvel zombie as you could find at the time. I was still enjoying <laughs> DC DC stuff, especially Nick Cardi stuff. But, but yeah, I, I, I became a real Marvel devotee. Yeah. Now, when Ditko went over to, because I, I wasn't aware of Ditko while he was at Marvel so much until until I was later exposed to Dr. Strange and stuff. But I was reading Creeper and Hawk and Dove in real time when they went over. Were, were you following that stuff? No. Unfortunately, I wasn't at the time. I would see the ads for Creeper and Hawk and Dove in, in some of the more mainstream DC stuff I was reading. And I was aware of... We were already aware of Ditko on Dr. Strange because... We got a whole bunch of the Marvel Tales giants, 25-cent Marvel Tales giants that ran Doctor Strange stuff. My, my brother, especially, Rand, was deeply into uh, Doctor Strange. And still to this day is. That's still one of his favorite characters. So we were aware of the Ditko stuff there for through the reprints. And when he went over to D.C., we missed Creeper almost completely. Hawk and the Dove, I was aware of through Teen Titans. I was always following Teen Titans, again, because of Cardi. But I was aware when Ditko was doing like Stalker and some of that other stuff. You know, there was a DC first issue special where they tried to revive the Creeper where he fought some lame villain called Firebug or Firefly or something like that. It was Yeah, and it just wasn't the same. No, they couldn't capture the same magic. I've since read the original Creeper run and just it's just ridiculously cool and weird and wonderful. 
I, I love the character. Yeah, that first issue is just uh, that showcase issue is just amazing. The origin story. Well, the DeFalco and um, I were actually we DeFalco and I were discussing doing a a creeper reboot with a DC editor, but it was at a time when DC editorial was not interested in doing anything with the creeper. It was right before they did that bizarre thing where he was like a Japanese or a Chinese alcohol spirit or some stupid oh, thing. Yeah, it was awful. It was right before it was right before they did that in Katana that we were told there was absolutely positively no interest in doing anything with the creeper. And then like a month later, this creeper shows up in Katana and it's like, what are you people doing? We had some ideas that they would have deviated from the original Ditko, but I was very interested in keeping as much of the Ditko aesthetic as possible. You know? Mm -hmm. So did you like the Ditko as much as the Romita? Yeah. I was never, I never pitted the two against each other, to tell you the truth. If you would have put a gun to my head on which books I could keep, I probably would have gone with Ramita. Because I maintain that as fantastic and quirky and wonderful as Ditko was, I think when Ramita took over the book, it broadened its appeal because Ramita's characters were more glamorous and, and, and more recognizable and heroic and and it's possible, I don't know this for a fact in any way, shape, or form, but it's possible that the quirkiness of Ditko could conceivably have held Spider-Man back slightly. And when Ramita came on and kind of opened it up and brightened it up and and made it look a little more, I don't know, like a... Like a, I'm I'm really struggling with what words to use here without being insulting to either Ramito or Ditko, uh, mm-hmm. but but he made it more it looked more like a comic like people were used to seeing in a comic book, right? And, right. A little more mainstream, uh, and, and that it yeah. might have opened up his popularity even even more, you know. But, yeah. So, but I don't know. So let before. me ask you, let me ask you about some of the other Marvel artists of that time. Your impressions when you were a kid, okay. when you were reading it yep. during this this age. You were aware of Kirby. What did you think of him, and did you follow him when he went to D.C.? We followed him when he went to D.C. because we were, again, still pretty much reading everything. And I loved his uh, initial uh, blast of books. I loved Jimmy Olsen under Kirby. I loved the first Mr. Miracle. To this day, that first issue of Mr. Miracle was like burned on my brain. Uh, we, We had a little bit of trouble getting all of the new gods. We never got the first issue. We got like the second issue and then we missed, you know, so, so distribution wasn't great. So we, we had some holes in our new gods run, but we got all the Mr. Miracles and I loved them, you know, and and Kirby is, you know, I will, I will cop to Kirby being an acquired taste. When I was a kid, I liked Kirby and the energy of it was there and all this kind of stuff. But anytime like Basema would do a flashback to a Kirby scene you know, I always preferred the Basema, you know, that kind of thing. And it wasn't, oh, you know, I, I, I think Kirby is somebody that you appreciate more as you become more educated on what he actually was doing. You know, otherwise you become caught up in how he draws fingers and how he draws knees and things like that. And, and you don't, you're not really, you're, you're absorbing the impact of the work, but you're not really absorbing why. And you're, and you're more likely to look at the, the nuts and bolts to try to explain the whole. And that's not how Kirby works. Kirby is impressionistic. Were, were you paying attention to the anchors at this point? Cause I think that's when I yes. noticed, ah, what, what, that doesn't look yeah. like that's Vince Coletta. I, that makes yeah. it different from what I was reading in, with Fantastic Oh, very Four. much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I became pretty aware very early on of different artist artistic styles and what anchors brought to the table and and you know was very fascinated anytime I could find a fan magazine that would show pencil samples and things you know uh I, I was very into that stuff and, and had favorite and, inkers as well as favorite pencilers and stuff yeah and who did you like inking on Kirby? Well, I was a big Senate fan. I, I was when I was reading the regular stuff in Marvel's Greatest Comics, the the initial run, inked by uh, by Senate. I loved Senate. I was never a uh, Coletta hater. I I liked what Vince would do with a lot of the stuff. I mean, that first issue of Mister Miracle, like I said, that that was Coletta. I you know those early Mister Miracles have a real feel to them. That as much as I, I mean, when Mike 
Royer came along, I was hooked. I loved the way he lettered. I loved the way he inked Kirby. I loved everything about the look of the finished book. I became obsessed with his display lettering. <laughs> I, I just loved everything about Mike Royer. But I was never a, was a hater on inkers. I would notice differences, and, and I would notice if somebody didn't really quite keep a, a, a sema face or something like that. But, I, you know, I was never really a, I, I always recognized that comics was an incredibly collaborative medium. I always I, I never trained myself with the inking tools. So, you know, I became almost to the detriment of my development. I became aware that comics was very collaborative and, and I wanted to pencil. You know, I knew I wanted to be a part of the visual storytelling. And so I knew I wanted to be a penciler. So I never really trained myself with the inking tools. Even now, I'm I'm only now getting confident in my inking ability as far as it being a separate discipline from penciling, you know, that kind of thing. So, and I just turned 60, so <laughs> I'm way behind me, the me curve too. on that yeah. kind of thing. Let me ask you real quickly about a couple others, and then we'll get okay. to your next step. So okay. what about Don Heck? I love Don Heck. Uh, my first exposure to Don Heck yeah. were the uh, Tales of Suspense Iron Man stories from the old Iron Man cartoon. And I found those stories, like that, that first battle with Titanium Man, which was inked, I think uh, a couple of chapters were inked by Wally Wood. But I think mostly it was like Esposito, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. And I loved Don Heck. So I never, he, again, he was he was never anybody that, I didn't look at Don Heck and go, he's not as good. I I love the energy that he had in there. As I've read about how things evolved at Marvel, I I kind of I liked Don Heck being Don Heck when he tried like when they gave him the Avengers and he was trying a little too hard to be Jack Kirby. I I think it I don't think it helped him as much as it might have helped him get work, but I don't think it helped his work overall to try to be something he wasn't, you know, to try to, to try to keep Stan happy with the Kirby over the top action. I don't think it served Don incredibly well, but those, those early Iron Man stories that he did that I was first exposed to on the cartoon are in just incredible to this day, just amazing stuff. And, you know, he was right there on my list of guys that I wanted to grow up and, and be someday, you know, absolutely. Oh, that's great. And then last one, Gene Colan. The early Daredevil stuff he did with Stan just made me laugh and, and, and entertained the hell out of me. Some of it I was seeing in reprint. There was a Marvel triple action or something for a while that they were reprinting the Daredevils. And I just, the stuff was incredible. I had some early Daredevils off the racks. They might have been given to me by, by my oldest brother. I'm not sure. But it was beyond my ken as far as some of the photorealism that he would get in there and everything. And you were still Even reading the, in the in the early 70s when he was doing uh, Tomb of Dracula with uh, Tom Palmer, too, right? I was I was reading all of that, too, yeah. Yeah, that first issue by uh, Vinnie Coletta actually inked the first issue of Tomb of Dracula. And I was hooked in the first issue. I, I kind of fell away from it later in the run to my undying shame. But I, I yep. was reading it from the beginning. That and uh, Mike Plug on Werewolf by Night, and huh. you know, I was sampling and Man Thing. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was great stuff. All right, so you got a partial scholarship to go to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. Was that straight out of high school? Yes. Yeah, the last two years of high school, I went to a Votech for half a day every day, and joined a an outfit called Vico, which is Vocational Industrial Clubs of America. And through joining VICA, they have regional and state competitions. And coming in, did I come in second or third? I think I came in third in the state and won a half scholarship to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. So I was able to complete the second year through grants and loans and stuff. But uh, I went to, I did the two-year course at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, which just recently closed down after changing owners how many times. It did me a lot of good. During the two years at Devotech, I had a, a really good instructor, a gentleman named Tony Crum, who made me realize that, you know, it's wonderful to have these dreams, but if you don't get into comics, you also don't want to limit yourself. You don't, you don't want to just, just be able to do comics. 
and he kind of opened my eyes. So the two years I spent at the Art Institute, I spent trying to make sure that my stuff didn't look like I was just comics taught. And I started to pay attention to other techniques and other ways of doing things on the chance that my that my dream would be foiled or delayed and I would have to get a job doing something besides comics for a while. I, I tried to pay attention to to everything else. And of course, that was all pre-computers. And I'm incredibly old. And that was all pre-computers. And, and we were still using Amberlith and Rubylith and uh, cutting film for overlays of the different color separations and all kinds of hands-on stuff that uh, nobody in the industry does anymore. You met Marie Severin before you met Jim Shooter when you showed him the Xeroxes, right? You guys, you guys certainly did your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a local comic convention, and she was one of the guests, and I took a stack of stuff. Again, it was no, it wasn't, they weren't, they weren't page samples. They were just loose drawings of, you know, dynamic figure work and characters that I had created and things like that. And she was incredibly wonderful and took a lot of time, as she was with everybody, looking through the stuff and giving opinions. And she liked my stuff enough that she wanted me to uh, take it to Jim Shooter and get a sample plot to really start working on storytelling and everything. She had irrational confidence in my ability to do it based on what she had seen in the drawings. But I chickened out that year. It wasn't until I was in the Art Institute that uh, was in downtown Pittsburgh and Jim Shooter was appearing at a shop within walking distance of downtown Pittsburgh doing autograph signings and stuff because that's his home turf as well. A couple of buddies of mine and I put together some samples and I came very close to chickening out there too, but my friends were very supportive and said, if you don't show him your samples, we're going to kill you. So I showed him samples and by that time I had done some storytelling. I had taken some stories from a friend at the Art Institute. He had his own character, the pariah, that involved mercenaries and South American jungles and things like that. So we, we did an origin story for him. Those were the pages that I showed to Jim Shooter along with a, like a three-page Spider-Man sequence from Foom magazine. I was curious he about was, that. He was what amazing. Was what the spider-man the film was that something you copied that was something you drew for film it was uh well their film was their their fan club for a while friends of old marvel f-o-o-m and they at one point in one of their magazines printed a three-page sequence it was for some kind of a contest i think they printed like three pages of plot of dr octopus has ned Leeds and betty brandt Uh hostage and spider-man as fighting the rhino and the green goblin, I think, or something. And it, so I just took that from the magazine, not to do the contest, but just to do the pages, working off of somebody else's plot. And, you know, I look back on this stuff now, and obviously Jim Shooter saw something in it he thought he could work with and said that he would, you know, give my name to editors and that I'd be hearing from them. And I walked out of there thinking, holy crap, that's, amazing and it was a year before i heard anything but i did end up hearing from them i would i were already taken a job at uh anavision a an animation house in pittsburgh that worked on local and regional tv commercials and we also worked on the two creep show movies we yeah i've I got questions okay. about that uh just a few yeah. but uh, i want yeah, to just uh, nail down the timeline when you met with Marie Severin, were you already out of the Art Institute, or were no, you? No, I was in. High, I was still in high school when I met with Marie. Oh, okay. Oh, what year would you say that was that you met her? Well, I graduated high school in '78, so I would say that was probably '77, '78, something like that. Oh, okay. And so, meeting with Shooter wasn't until towards the end of art school. So, art school, I guess, would have been '79, '80 or 79 yeah. to 81 or something like that. And by 83, I think my first published work, the first KSR stuff, I think was end of 82, 83, something like that. So yeah, was, right. was the book, the John Bushima, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, did you read that before you were submitting oh, your stuff? Yeah, that was one of my Christmas gifts one year. And I went through that until pages were falling out of it and stuff. I, I did two stories for a magazine that was published here out of Pittsburgh called Questar Magazine. They did a, this would have been when I was working at the animation studio, 
they were on the floor below us, their offices, and I had shown them some samples. They were aware of my work up in the animation studio. And they had a strip in their magazine called Just Imagine Genie that was originally created by Forrest J. Ackerman. Yeah. And was originally drawn by, oh, man, I'm, uh, this is embarrassing. What's the guy's name that did the soup cans and everything? Oh, Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. Andy Warhol. His brother, James Warhola, did the art on the first Just Imagine Genie strips. Okay. Wow. Now they lost, they lost Warhola early on. They lost 4EJ Ackerman early on as far as contributing to the strip. But at one point, they had a local writer doing the scripts, and Mike Grell did a couple of installments for them. And then they had just recently lost Mike Grell to other work and everything. And they asked me if I was interested in taking it over. Now, the, so the first, the first published work I did, comics work I did, was for this Questar magazine, this, this Just Imagine Genie episode that I penciled, inked, and lettered myself. It looks like it. I, well, the reason I bring it up is because there are panels in there that are lifted directly out of how to draw comics the Marvel way. So that was my Bible, you know, as I was and my uh, my crutch as I was f- first getting into doing published work. And then the second installment I did of Just Imagine Genie was in full color, and I lettered it and colored it myself with with markers and stuff uh, for, for for full color publishing. That was very bizarre, too, because uh, the guy I worked with at the animation studio, my boss there, Rick Catazone, introduced me to different uh, different illustrators and stuff. And I'm trying to remember the one gentleman's name, and I'm not coming up with it. But there was that, and I was going through – in art school, I went through a big Gene Colan phase where I was trying to recreate some of the dynamics of Gene Colan's work. Mm. So there was a weird mix of stuff going on in my brain at the time. But uh, those would have been my first – two published pieces and what can i tell you let me ask you a little bit about anavision um you mentioned creep show what were you doing on the on the first one the 1982 one what were you doing were you doing storyboards i was was hired animation i was hired in general based on my portfolio that i could draw from memory and that I could, I had a solid grasp on anatomy and things like that without, uh, without having to use much in the way of reference. So I, he used me initially for some storyboarding. He used me for in-betweening, which is exactly what it sounds like. He does the key drawings and I do all the drawings in between. So that's kind of what I did on Creepshow. The original Creepshow, we did some stuff on colored paper. There's the scene where they pull the camera back and the creep flies back and points down at the garbage can and we come in on the uh, the comic book and everything. That was all done on colored paper with colored pencil. The backgrounds were, and, you know, so there was all kinds of different media being used in that. But the only artwork of mine that you see in the first Creep Show directly are the opening credits and the creeps had to be inserted into some of the splash pages. One of the original EC guys did the pages, the transition pages for the first movie. But when they decided to use the creep as a host, we had to rejigger some of the splash pages and, and kind of stick the creep in there as the host. And I did some of that. Oh, nice. But, uh, so when you say original EC guys, you mean Jack Kamen? Yeah. 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 Okay. They brought him out of retirement to do the original transition pages and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. So there's some yeah. stuff online that's uh, that's described as tryout things for you from that. Do you know what that was? Yeah, those were marker renderings that I did early on when we were just seeing the beginnings of the script. My boss wanted me to do basically audition to do the uh, transition pages and stuff, which didn't happen because they were able to get a hold of Jack Kamen. So yeah, that's what that was. It was like the splash page for the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill and I think I did one for the end of Father's Day or the something. The birthday like that. one. Yeah. The yeah, birthday it was one. the birthday one. Those were heavily influenced by my boss was pointing me towards like Bernie Wrightson and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, and but it, yeah, it was a, it, we were trying to basically do as much of it in-house as we could possibly could. And actually for the second one, we ended up doing that. I did do all the pages and transition shots and everything for the second one. And that was, was years later, point, though, right? 
Yeah, at that point, I wasn't working full time at the animation studio. I came back to do that. Oh, yeah. I was wondering about that because that was that was several years later. Did you do anything else while you were at Anavision that was interesting? I know they did that Tom Petty video, uh, Running Down in Dream, but you didn't work and on I that, was, did you? I was. I think I was pretty much gone by then too. There was like one sequence involving the sequence where he's on the building, like King Kong or something that I I did a couple of drawings for, but uh, ah. I wasn't really as, I wasn't as involved in the production stuff then. I think, like I said, I think I had moved on. I quit the animation studio when they offered me Spider-Man. During the I, time I was at the animation studio, I was working full-time at the animation studio, and that was during the time I was doing KSAR. I did the two Indiana Jones fill-ins, my run on Star Wars, and my run on uh, Marvel Team-Up were all done while I was also working full-time at the animation studio. Kind of getting now to Marvel, you had given Jim Shooter those pages, and -hmm. then I think some time had gone by, maybe a year, possibly. Yeah, Uh, all that work. I was working at the animation studio for almost a year when I got a phone call from my mom. I was still living at home, and (laughs) she said, somebody named Al Milgram called from Marvel and wants (laughs) to talk to you. And I went, really? Okay, so she gave me the number, and I called, and I talked to Al Milgram, and he handed the phone to Louise Jones, and that's how I got those first two KSAR jobs. Yeah. Yeah, and that was KSAR 17. It was a fill-in issue, right? And and how did that work? Did they work Marvel-style, like, give you a plot? You... Well, Bruce Jones never did anything traditionally, so my first exposure to working for Marvel wasn't really working Marvel-style. Bruce Jones would write these little short stories with no page breakdowns or anything. And it was your job to translate that into pictures. So Mm -hmm. that was, it was a very different thing from even being working off a traditional Marvel plot. But with Louise there to hold my hand and walk me through it, I did what I was told. And I actually did 17 first, which was a very bizarre story where, what is it? Like Kesar thinks he's in a detective novel or something like that. I forget how that happens. He gets a concussion. Yeah, or that cover like says Kazar the detective on yeah. it. I, rem- I remember it well because it was, it was different. Yeah, and he's altered somehow. I forget exactly what happens in the story, but he's altered and thinks he's living a detective novel that he was reading. So it was, it was a test. I don't know if I served the story incredibly well, but got to the end of that one and uh, turned it around fast enough that they said, well, we have issue 16 that we'd like you to do. Right. Uh, a little tighter next. deadline. And I went, okay. And that one was more traditional in the jungle, fighting monsters and things like that. So I was much more comfortable with that one. Turned, now, uh, as far out. as that jumping around in the jungle and just kind of anatomic action hero, how did you feel about that, about just jumping, a character jumping around the pages that way? Well, that's what I was comfortable with. I mean, anytime you can just do the the human figure in motion with a manageable background, like a jungle setting or something like that. I think it's faster than, you know, doing the, de- the thing with the detective novel was that the detective sequences were supposed to be set, you know, like in the thirties and were supposed to be more noir. And that right. those are the kinds of aspects that I'm not sure I served as well as I could have, because this was before the internet and you know you had to really dig for reference for different things back then you know and i'm like that's why i'm not sure i served that particular aspect of the story all that well but mm-hmm. i think most of us would admit most freelance illustrators that work in comics would admit that if you gave us two guys in skin tight costumes fighting each other in a white room that would be our ultimate story you know? yeah <laughs> If That's you didn't have to worry easy, about backgrounds, easy, yeah. if you just got to draw dynamic figures beating the crap out of each other, that's our sweet spot. You know, that that's, kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Anything um, else now, is taxing us in one direction or the other, you know. Right. Was there any uncredited Marvel work before that, or it, it pretty much starts at Kesar? It pretty much starts at Kesar. I, I did not start out ghosting for anybody or doing backgrounds for anybody or anything like right. that, no. Then no. you did breakdowns for King Conan 12, is that right? That is correct. That was the third thing I did for Louise. Uh-huh. And interestingly enough, after I did that, they offered me King Conan as a regular gig, 
but again, still working at the animation studio, and that that being a double sized story every it might have been bi monthly, I'm not sure. Hmm? But I remember being very gun shy to take a regular gig at that point. You know, I was happy doing whatever they wanted me to do, but I was a little unsure about going on a regular gig. So I turned down King Conan. And then a little while later, they offered me KSR. Grant Anderson decided he was leaving KSR, and they offered me KSR. And at that point, God's honest truth, I probably would have rather done Conan than that version of KSR, but that horse was already out of the barn. But at that point, when they offered me KSR, I was afraid if I don't take this, they're going to stop offering things. So I took it. And that's how my stint on KSR happened. That's how it started. Yeah. Were you looking at any Tarzan stuff just for kind of reference? No, uh, not just... Tarzan. I, I was a huge Basema fan. So I had all of his black and white KSR stories from that Savage Tales they were running in the 70s. I got gotcha. you. That was the stuff I was looking at, I think, the most. Uh, even with Shanna, I was looking at some Dizuniga black and white stories that he did with Shanna. For the most part, my reference for my stuff on KSR was mostly the black and white KSR stuff and not even the color stuff that Basema did, you know. Right. Yeah, the black and white magazines. So then you started doing, again, more non-superhero stuff. It was Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Marvel Saga. How did all that come about? Just the way things do, you know, people see that you're hitting your deadlines and see the work that you're doing and think you might be okay for this. I mean, Indiana Jones, again, was out of Louise's office. So at that point, Star Wars was out of Louise's office. So at that point, I was just one of Louise's guys. And she was right. kind of using me as a utility guy for fill-ins and such. The first thing I did for Star Wars was a framing sequence for a Cary Gamble inventory story that they had with Archie and Walt moving off the book, they were bringing in Mary Jo as the scripter and they had done a Mary Jo, I guess probably as a, as a floater, as a test balloon had done a, an inventory with Carrie Gamble. Of course they had worked on power man, iron fist together or wood. I don't know. Maybe it's no, I guess they had already, but anyway, they had this uh, inventory story and they needed a few pages to fit it into continuity. So that was the first thing I was asked to do for Star Wars before they offered it to me. And I was a big Star Wars fan. I loved Luke Skywalker. So that was a lot of fun for me. And the only postscript I would put on the KSR stuff is that I was a huge fan of KSR prior to the Bruce Jones stuff. And while I appreciated what Bruce Jones was doing with the character and that it was getting a lot of response from the readership, I didn't think KSR needed to be fixed. And I was constantly behind the scenes begging Louise Jones to, could we do a story that bridges how yeah. the Kesar I remember so fondly from the old Kesar stories became this Kesar? Right. And Louise, thinking like an editor and not being worried about one fan crying in the wilderness, was going, Ron, nobody cares. <laughs> this book is selling. We're doing fine. You know, and I said, but, you know, at one point there was even a reference uh, where Shauna was talking to Peter Parker, which is, again, I got to do Spider-Man in, in KSAR as well. She was talking to Peter Parker and said something about KSAR struck her at one point, And he goes, KSAR hit you? And she goes, yeah, all apes hit their mates. And I'm like, he's not an ape, man. Hmm. He was raised by Zabu. He's a feral child, but he's not an ape, man. That's funny. And and. And one, one scene where he's fighting the monster in my second issue, I, would, I liner noted, stronger than the Mastodon, stronger than the giant boar, mighty as Kesar, Lord of the Jungle. That was his thing, man. Hmm. And I liner noted that, and they completely ignored it. And I'm going, oh, you're killing me. That would have been a nice <laughs> little bridge from the guy I knew to this guy, you know. And, yeah, and they, yeah. Just, they were not wrecking. It was one of those situations where they just weren't recognizing that the old Kesar had any fans, you know. And it was frustrating, but I certainly understood where Louise was coming from. So did you have a favorite inker at this time? Like, did you like Tom Palmer's inks on your stuff? Well, Tom Palmer, yes. I mean, anybody would love Tom Palmer. I liked what Armando Gill did over me for the most part. What I remember about Armando at the time is that he really wanted to pencil. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of issues from him that were, a little more slapdash than others. For the most part, he was he did beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. 
but we had a couple of issues where the editor wasn't as happy with what he was producing, but she knew it was because he was frustrated and he wanted to pencil. And when I left the title, he penciled, I think, maybe one or two issues before he realized penciling's really hard <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and decided he was done already, you know. So, uh. I mean, Armando left comics. I don't know what he's doing now. I mean, he's a hell of an illustrator. So, I mean, I hope wherever he's doing, he's happy. But, huh, you know, cool. I enjoyed working with him. I liked it. Now, as far you were doing all this from Pittsburgh, right? So you would essentially yeah, mail yeah. your stuff in. Yeah, a lot of shipping through the post office and or FedEx. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, were you wondering like, okay, am I ever going to draw superheroes? Was that your preferred genre? I was scared that I was not going to get to do superheroes. Uh, It was one of those things like, okay, I've shown them that I can function outside the superhero genre, but there's nothing I want to do more than superheroes. Mm -hmm. And so when Spider-Man showed up in KSAR, I was happy as a clam and I got to do some Spider-Man and that's uh, Tom DeFalco was the editor of team up at the time. And he saw the Spider-Man I did in KSAR and thought, well, this guy doesn't screw up Spider-Man too badly. So maybe I can give him some fill in stuff. I did an inventory issue of Marvel team up, which led to me being hired as the regular artist on team up, but it, it, it didn't seem like it because it, it was broken up with fill-ins, and then the team shifted pretty quickly to DeFalco giving up those titles and handing them to Danny, and that was when I was hired to do the regular book. So You were doing the Marvel team-ups. You worked with writer Bill Mantlow, right, on a few of those yeah. issues? How was his style of collaboration with uh, well, he was doing, you guys were you know, He was doing much more traditional Marvel plots, so I was thrilled finally working on traditional Marvel plots. Joe Duffy did traditional Marvel plotting and and did some page breakdown and stuff, which was very helpful. And Joe really got me used to the traditional Marvel collaboration where, you know, she would plot it to a point where you felt confident what you were doing visually. And then she enhanced that with her script. And I enjoyed working with Joe immensely. I, I learned everything I know about partnership and checking your ego at the door and trusting your partner is I learned from Joe because I never really had much interaction with Bruce Jones on KSR. He turned in his little short stories and I did what I did with them. And that was pretty much that. So when I was working with Mantlo, I never, I don't believe I ever had a phone conversation with Bill or anything because I I didn't really work on enough of his stories for it to matter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was working traditional Marvel plot. So it was when I became used to working with Joe. So it was fairly seamless. I mean, I don't remember the stories I did with him being a problem of any kind. He put a lot into his stories. You got your money's worth if you were paying Bill Mantlo for a plot. Right. Because I remember the Kitty Pride one I did had a, a lot of story to it. The Wonder Man one I did, I think, was Dave Michelinie. The Jack of Hearts one, of course, was Bill Mantlo. That was his baby. Was that a pain to draw, Jack of Hearts? Oh, I love that character. I love that outfit. It, it, yeah, I do too. It, it, once you draw it once or twice, you get the pattern down, and it's not a problem at all. I've never really understood people complaining about that. I mean, that's the same people that complain about Jack of Hearts are the ones that complain about Spider-Man's webbing, and it's like, oh, boo-hoo, draw the damn webbing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I had to complain about anything with Spider-Man, it's drawing New York City. <laughs> Every yeah, that's, you know, that's every third panel you got to do a cityscape. That's where you complain about Spider-Man, not the web. There you go, and that's funny. I haven't heard that before, but that does that does make sense. So then you did the where Kazar and Spidey team up, and then yeah. DeFalco saw your rendition of Spider-Man. So it, was it that there was this feeling of okay, there's like a Ramita Bushima vibe to this Spider-Man, and that resonated with so. with DeFalco probably. I think so. I think so. Yeah. By the time I was a couple of issues in on the KSR stuff, I mean, it, I was fairly comfortable doing a kind of a a Sal take on Spider-Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they saw it as being pretty standard for what was going on at the time. And, and it was safe enough to hand it over. Of course, what they didn't suspect until the kid who collects Spider-Man, which I did before I was awarded the series, what they weren't expecting was that, if I got to do more Spider-Man, I was going to pull out my Ditko. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So when I turned in the pencils on the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, there was some consternation about some of the reverse webbing on the mask and all that kind of stuff. There was some consideration about having it fixed. And 
this was all, you know, pre-Todd McFarlane, of course. They didn't, to their credit. They didn't fix it. And it landed pretty well with the audience. So, I mean, it's a fantastic story. I mean, Roger, that's all due to Roger. All I had to do was stay out of the way and let the story tell itself. Right. So now, once you then got offered Spidey as a regular gig, that's when you decided to leave Anavision, right? Indeed. I sat down with my boss and had a long conversation with him. Freelance is freelance. But through paying my taxes, those couple of years that I was doing both, it became clear that you know working in Anavision was kind of paying the taxes on what I was doing for Marvel. Ah. And that even though I would be freelance, if they were offering me a regular monthly title, that's about as stable as you get in the comics industry. And they were offering me The Amazing Spider-Man. So unless I screwed up, I thought about turning it down because I didn't think I was ready. But then it occurred to me that I could be relied upon to give 110% to what I was producing because of my love of the character. And it would have been hard for me to not take it. And then whoever did take it kind of watch them <laughs> do those stories. You know, I mean, that would have, I don't think I could have survived that to tell you the truth. So I closed my eyes and jumped and said, yes. So, Nice. So, Ron, I want to clarify a, a couple of points about that. So you were initially hired to fill in for John Romita Jr. while he set up X-Men, right? And you were going to do like six issues? That is true. Now, yes. was was the kid who collects Spider-Man one of those six issues, or did that no. come before that, that was prior. of issues? That was prior. I you, had also done... No, I was never offered Spider-Man like, would you like the book, until we were a few issues into the run. And it, and it became clear that JR had had a conversation with Danny and decided that he wasn't coming back and go ahead and give it to us. Mm-hmm. So, All right, yeah. so you didn't uh, leave the animation studio until you knew that you had the, the ongoing gig? No, the idea that they were offering me Spider-Man work <laughs> was making me feel like, okay, I can do this. There you go. You know, the, it, it, it's, it was their, you know, masthead character, for God's sakes. And uh, so, yeah, it, that, at that point, it was supposed to be a six-issue run, but I had no reason to believe that it that I wouldn't be safe on, like, Marvel Team-Up or something else. Because I had already done a what-if with Spider-Man, and I had already done a what-if with the FF, working with Senate. And, I mean, it was just all this. I was becoming more and more useful to them. Some of which through I, I was able to turn around breakdowns quickly. I mean, they they pretty early on shifted me to breakdowns because they liked my storytelling and were more concerned with getting these books laid out and onto the anchor and stuff. So for the longest time, I thought I you know that that would be my my role. You know, I would be kind of like a utility sal guy. You know, that kind of thing. And I was fine with it, but I had every reason to believe that that would lead to more work. Well, thanks so much, Ron Friends, for this awesome interview here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Join us next week for part two of the Ron Friends career interview. 